Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Dale and Uzo from Bulletproof Bodies. Dale and Uzo are the founders of Bulletproof Bodies, a sports medicine and physiotherapy company providing service and support for adventure racers, event organizers, and athletes who require healthcare professionals to understand the demands of arduous events. Their ethos is to keep you on the field of play by any means necessary, using a comprehensive system of preventative and restorative cutting-edge physiotherapy, massage, and rehabilitation. Dale is a university lecturer in physiotherapy and an adventure athlete. He's a former Army Physical Training Instructor, Royal Marines Commando, and British Army Physiotherapy Officer. He has over 23 years of military service with operational tours of Iraq and Afghanistan and is currently serving in the Royal Army Medical Corps as a reservist. He has a special interest in CrossFit, working as a physiotherapist for most of the major UK and European CrossFit competitions, including regionals. Dale currently holds a Master's of Science degree in Exercise and Sports Medicine, with Bachelor's degrees in Exercise Physiology and Nutrition and Physiotherapy. He is a full member of the UK Charity Society of Physiotherapists and is a CrossFit Level 1 Certified Coach. Uzo is a specialist physiotherapist with an interest in CrossFit and strength and conditioning. He is a former Royal Marines Commando, Special Operations Soldier and British Army Physiotherapy Officer. He has a Master of Science degree in Physiotherapy and Bachelor's degrees in Applied Sports Science and Physiotherapy. He is a full member of the UK MSK Association of Chartered Physiotherapists and a visiting lecturer at several universities in the UK. Uzo is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. In this episode, Dale and Uzo discuss their career paths into physiotherapy and the Royal Army Medical Corps, working at Headley Court during military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, the role of physiotherapists whilst on deployment, multidisciplinary teams, the need for subject matter experts, but also blurring the lines between roles. In this episode, Dale and Uzo talk about how their own practice and philosophy have developed over time, their views on using research literature to guide and inform practice, but also not being shackled. Good morning, Uzo and Dale, and welcome to the podcast, guys. Good morning, Thank John. You very much. Good morning. Glad to have you guys on. I know we've had uh, some back and forth. We're just trying to get schedules to, to match up, but really thanks uh, for taking the time to come and speak to me today, guys. Absolute pleasure. I know Uzo and I are looking forward to it. Nice. Absolutely. Absolute so, pleasure. So obviously, uh, for both of you guys, I've been following some of your work for quite a while. Uh, for the guys who may not be familiar with both yourself, Dale and Uzo, uh, can you just give us uh, a little bit of background on your careers, like where you started out and where you are currently now? Um, well, I think the first thing, um, it's important to just tell you a little story about where Uzo and I met. Um, so we're in the Royal Marines and we were an ultra fit competition. This was the days before CrossFit. We used to do ultra fit and, uh, my team beat his team in the final and that's where we met, isn't it? Uz? Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, Dale sort of only tells you half the story. Yes. His team beat <laughs> my team, but actually, uh, my team was a scratch team. So we didn't actually know we were going to enter on that particular day. So we turned up pretty much unprepared. Um, and I think we came second out of about 14 teams. So considering we were a unprepared team and we hadn't done any training for it, it wasn't bad, really, under the circumstances. I like but it. I like you guys. That's, uh, that's where we met, where my team beat Uzo's team, regardless of the excuses. But uh, no, in all seriousness, <laughs> um, we, you know, we, we met in the Royal Marines 
um, lots of, of similarities. We were both uh, into the, the, the fitness arena. Um, we were both wanted to become physios or, or were in the process of becoming physios. Um, and then we, uh, we left the Royal Marines. Um, I, I decided to, to join the Army, uh, Royal Army Medical Corps as a physio. Um, and I put that idea to Uzo and a year later, uh, you did the same. Isn't that right, mate? I did. I did indeed. Um, I mean, it's funny though, isn't it? Because actually, I, you know, if you go back and you look at his, historically, we've pretty much have come along really from a very similar background. Um, and our paths are probably still getting in sort of similar directions, um, really. So we both originally started um, with, you know, uh, our insight into exercise and health really started through the forces. Um, so I was 16 when I joined uh, the Marines. Um, Dale would probably, Dale, you'd been in the army prior to that, and, and and we probably joined around about the same ages. And it was our, and it was work in um, the military, which probably, um, you know, gave us the taste, if you like, for uh, exercise and wellness. And and then as a consequence, that's probably been the one thing I suspect that has uh, permeated all the way through our careers is the fact that actually we, we, we both started from the military and actually exercise health and fitness um, really f- has always featured um, quite highly within our lives. And for you guys then, <clears throat> obviously having that background in exercise and within the military, what was the, um, what was the, the big push for both of you guys to, to pursue careers in physiotherapy then? What, what made that change and what made you want to step into that, uh, that realm? Well, I'll go first on this one. So um, when you're in the, the fitness space, um, I always wanted to know more and more about what was going on. Why were we doing this? Why were we doing that? Like, I had a very kind of academic, logical, rational approach to, to exercise. Uh, and a lot of the fitness industry really couldn't, couldn't answer those questions. Um, I had a, a little brother who was disabled. Um, so I'd, I'd been in the disability space for a long while. Um, and it was really combining my love of fitness and military training um, with, you know, helping, helping others uh, and seeing how physical disability disadvantaged lots of people. So, you know, for, for me, it was quite a deep seated um, calling, if you like, to, you know, to go and help others. Um, but if I could combine that with all my military stuff, then it was a win win. What about yourself? As? Yeah, no. So um, I guess my my sort of background started, um, I guess physiotherapy, I almost fell into it by chance to a certain extent. So um, I was a young Marine, um, like I was 16 or 17. Uh, to cut a long story short, um, I was knocked off my bike in central London. Um, and at the time I was working at the Royal Tournament, probably some of your listeners may remember, um, but many probably won't. The Royal Tournament was, was a military tattoo, which was hosted in uh, London. It had been for about 30 or 40 years. Um, and, and I was working at this military tattoo, um, recruiting basically um, uh, people to the Marines. And, um, and so as I say, so I knocked off my bike and uh, went, to, went to the local hospital, had whiplash, you know, the standard stuff anyway uh, i was lucky enough that because i was working at this military tattoo um i was able to access the services of a military physiotherapist mm-hmm. at the time really i didn't know very much about physiotherapy um and anyway this guy obviously worked worked his worked his magic and i got talking to him and it, and it turned out that um 
he had come from a different profession. So he had a degree in history and then subsequently gone on to, um, to practice, to study physiotherapy. So I got talking to him and, and it all seemed really, really interesting at that particular time. Um, I wasn't, I didn't really have a background in science uh, per se, cause I hadn't done particularly well in school. Um, so I'd, I'd gone to college and I studied catering. Um, and, and really, I guess it was my love of, fitness and also meeting and this chance encounter with this particular healthcare professional which which spurred my interest in physiotherapy um and and subsequent to that i i then went on to um try to get into physiotherapy the hard way because i didn't have any gcse's per se i didn't have any a levels uh, i didn't particularly want to go down the a level road because i was you know already sort of you know you know 17 stroke 18 um and so I decided that I was going to become a personal trainer and then I would try to get a, de- try to get a degree in applied sports science. And if, if that didn't work out, at least I'd have my personal training qualifications or, and if it did work out, at least I'd have a degree in applied sports science. And somewhere along the line, I would try and, if you like, um, you know, claw my way into physiotherapy. Um, and so that, uh, and that's basically what happened. So it, it was a, to get into physiotherapy, to start the course, it was a four year journey. So three years, um, a BSc in applied sports science, um, and also a year before that access into science. So it very much was a, a long-term, a long-term goal really to get into it. And that's kind of how I got into it really. Um, by chance, it was a, it would be in October. So I, I have to thank a black cab driver in central London. I don't know if he's still working, but <laughs> thanks to you. But thanks to you. Um, I'm now 17, 18 years into, uh, into a, a great career. So, so yeah, that's it. It's interesting how things come around, mate, honestly. Um, with regards to both of you guys, so obviously you were both in the, the Royal Army Medical Corps and you were both um, posted to, to Headley Court. Can you just talk a little bit about your time at Headley Court and how things were for you guys prior to operational deployments kicking off and then once operational deployments did kick off in Iraq and Afghanistan, how did things change at Headley Court for you guys? Well, from the start of Headley Court, I was, a, I was an elective student at Headley Court in 2004. Uh, uh, so Headley Court was very different then. Uh, it basically, you had earlies, mids and lates, upper limb, lower limb, spines. Uh, and that was it. And, and part of your job as a physio was to go out and actually do the phys with the guys. Mm-hmm. So we were running a CFT every month. So as the physio, you, you know, as an officer, you had to be a role model, you had to go and actually do a CFT every month. So you, you had to be physical to prove what was going on. Uh, fast forward to when I joined uh, 2007, just come out straight to Headley Court. Um, and Headley Court was different. The operational tempo was much higher. Um, you know, we, we've kind of gone away from this. We were still running the, the earlies, mids and lates. Uh, but now we were beginning to deal with, you know, battle casualties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had some significant trauma from Iraq. We were getting some stuff from Afghan. Um, Uzo's got a bit more experience of, of the operational side of things in terms of Afghan. Uh, but in terms of Headley Court, um, I was still quite a junior physio, and it was just the best place to, to, to be a physio. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, just the the vibe um we you know i had some true experts that have been you know treated simon weston back in the day you know and we're still at headley court um you know some amazing 
mentors and clinicians. And it, I, I think it was the best physio department in the country, if not the world at the time. Uh, I was absolutely loving it. Um, and then Uzo was in a year later. What was your experience, mate? Yeah, no, I would say that actually um, Headley Court, uh, during, during that time, I would say that actually, um, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately, because obviously, you know, people lost their lives uh, and also livelihoods because of the Afghanistan and obviously the Iraq conflict. So that's unfortunate. But, you know, often what happens is in times of war, uh, that's where you see the most uh, technological advancement in uh, healthcare. Um, and so I would say that actually during during that particular time, um, that, those two conflicts, in my opinion, made um, Defence Medical Rehabilitation Services. Um, and, uh, what it did, it put Defence Medical Rehabilitation Services on the front line mm-hmm. um, and within the headlines. Um, and it became something which which was which effectively it became a political tool. Um, and as a consequence of that, what what we saw was we saw a massive um, elevation in services and also effort um, for the blokes, you know, for the injured servicemen and women um, who fundamentally they deserved it. But but if you go back, say, 20 years, um, you know, Defence Medical Rehabilitation Services um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that it was a joke, but if you look back through some of the historical literature, um, actually, um, it was very, very poor, actually. And, and some people would argue that it was actually a disgrace. Um, and NHS services were significantly better and significantly advanced. Now, again, it's obviously conjecture and that's just opinion. But, um, you know, you, you fast forward to this conflict and actually, and, and you know, just the level of care that the blokes received, the quality of the services, the equipment that we had, the money that was thrown at, at, at you know, defence medical rehabilitation services, it was phenomenal. And, you know, on the shop floor, as Dale rightly said, working in that environment, it was just so satisfying. If you were a physiotherapist, it was the best physiotherapy job to have probably in the country, probably better than elite sport, because you were working with the war wounded, Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentally you, you had um you know you had a you had a multidisciplinary team okay you, you know from social workers through to consultants in in sports and exercise medicine through to rehabilitation instructors to physiotherapists to prosthetists to vocational occupational therapists it literally was an all-star cast um so as a consequence it was it, it literally was the best place to work and you know and and, and as dale you know says as well you know we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves and really we were probably you know four or five years into our physiotherapy careers and and you know for me it's it, it was absolutely amazing um and something that i probably won't forget just a quick one on that. So I was working uh, at Roehampton, the amputee, the Douglas Bader Centre, because um, I had an interest in amputees. Um, and I can remember the military coming down to, to uh, Roehampton in 2005 uh, and the, the NHS staff laughing about the fact that the military was going to set up a prosthetic centre uh, because they think they didn't have the skill set, they didn't have the understanding, um, they didn't have this, they didn't have that, but, you know, the military was not just as good, it, it became better. And I had the honour of taking 
the first triple amputee battle casualty through Royal Marine, uh, Mark Umrud, who is probably one of the most amazing men on the planet. Okay, you know, countless others followed, but it was, it was just an amazing place to, to try and make some, some, you know, to give the best care to the, this tragic situation that's happened, casualties of war, significant injuries, you know, that weighed heavy on everyone. But, you know, they really did get this amazing care. You know, we did everything we could. And, you know, treating triple amputees in their 20s, -hmm. we were able to do stuff that we'd never seen before. And the knock-on effect to the disability community was one of empowerment, one of, you know, look at all these young men with prosthetics. They're all getting about doing stuff. And, and, you know, a couple of them, you know, uh, Joe Joe Townsend, Derek Darren Lagi, uh, John Allen Butterworth went on to be Paralympic medal winners in London and Rio. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know this the the in terms of how this influenced the disability community, the community in terms of empowerment was unbelievable. Uh, yeah. You know it was such a powerful message. That, that's really that's interesting all I've got to say from you guys, your perspective on like just how things were and like with all the money and the the. Uh the really good multidisciplinary teams and how that grew and like that support that came around guys as well. That's really interesting just to hear that story of things developing through. You touched on there briefly <clears throat> around deployments and Uzo, I know you've done some stuff around this. We were chatting to JP in one of our earlier episodes about what it was like for him as an RI being deployed over in Afghan. You just talk to us a little bit about what life was like for you as a physio while you were deployed and what that generally looked like while you're out there. Yeah, no. So it, it's actually probably worthwhile to say that, um, yeah, and I'll and I'll touch on teams because I'm, you know, I'm I'm quite strong when it comes to teams and systems. Um, so I deployed with a, a rehabilitation instructor, um, and he was absolutely top notch, um, uh, Sergeant Saxton. Um, he was absolutely top notch, um, and actually being out there with um, another clinician, and I viewed him as an equal, and I viewed him as a clinician. Um, uh, rather than a rehabilitation instructor, um, I couldn't have done what I did out there without him, and we effectively couldn't have done it ourselves. So, um, and it's important to it's important to raise that because I think often what tends to happen is is we tend to be quite hierarchical, um, especially mm-hmm. within the military, um, especially within um, healthcare. But actually, you know, there is no I in team, and uh, and that's why I really put that out there first um so in terms of deployment um so we would so we would deploy for uh, four to five on uh, four to five month tours tours of duty and and effectively our goal out there was uh was, was really twofold so uh, the physiotherapy services would would deploy um in in both a uh, peripatetic clinic perspective okay and also as a de- as a deployed section at um, Camp Bastion, so working within the confines of the hospital. So I was I was deployed as a with um, as I say Sergeant Saxton, so myself and another uh, um, um, ERI. And our and our job fundamentally was to run clinics, uh, outpatient musculoskeletal clinics um, across um, Afghanistan. So so we um, so so our area of operation was um, Laskigar. Um, Kandahar um, and also Kabul and also some of the small uh, patrol bases um, in, and, in and around in and around um, uh, Hellman. So fundamentally our goal was to, was to um, 
keep as many um, servicemen, um, servicemen and women in theatre. So, so to keep them in Afghanistan um, and to keep them working. So that was our main remit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so in order to do that, um, we, we would run musculoskeletal clinics. Um, and really, I guess the criteria was, um, are they, so if they're injured, um, are they, firstly, are they fit to stay in theatre? Okay. Um, and if they're not fit to stay in theatre, um, are they able to do another role, okay, um, away from their primary role? Uh, and that, that then, in order to, in order to, in order to decide that, you need to have um, it's, it's effectively a consultation with um, their bosses or their chain of command. The next thing was, um, okay, if they're not able to do their job, um, are do we think that this particular problem or injury is going to be fixed within two to three weeks uh, with some intensive rehabilitation and treatment? If that's the case, then then we could essentially move them back to Cambastian, okay, and they could be effectively um, housed at Cambastian, and they would and they ran rehabilitation courses there. Um, or was this actually not particularly that serious, and uh, we could do we could we could uh, devise a very basic rehabilitation program, okay, for them in their in their area of operation, so within their unit, and they'd be able to do that. Say, for example, so classic example of that would be you know, someone that has uh, iliotibial band syndrome, okay, so they have you know lateral lateral knee pain, for want of a better phrase, um, you know, okay, which is which is brought on because you know. Um, you know they've got tightness somewhere somewhere or they're just or they're just moving not particularly well or or there's something which is very very amenable and very very changeable then we would give them that advice uh, show them what they need to do give them a management plan excellent get on mm-hmm. um, but then you'd have a situation where say for example and I, and I can think of this situation so example so we had a corporal um, in the RAF regiment okay um, and he effectively he had uh, dislocated his shoulder okay so he dislocated his shoulder um so he was um force protection so what that means was effectively he was standard on the main gate um and had to operate a rifle okay um he dislocated his shoulder okay with the best will in the world okay he's not going to be he's not going to be in a in a position to operate his primary weapon okay he could barely hold a pistol let alone operate a rifle Okay, so the question now is, and so obviously having been a Royal Marine as well, you know, I understand these things quite intimately. So the question I would ask, I just simply ask myself is, is this guy going to be in a position where he can use his primary and his secondary weapon if he has to? He's recently dislocated his shoulder. The shoulder's unstable. Clearly he's not going to be able to. Do I think that actually sending him to Camp Bastion for three weeks is going to sort this problem? No. It's not. It's not going to allow him to be in a position where he's able to use his primary and his secondary weapon, mm-hmm. and he's not going to pose um, a liability to both himself and, most importantly, to his mates, yeah, and the people that he's meant to be looking after. Um, so, actually, this guy, we had to aeromed him back home. Yeah. So he was. He became quote unquote a battle, a, a non-battle casualty, um, who was. Um, aeromedically evacuated back home because he couldn't do his job. So they were some of the decisions that we had to make. So it was treatment, but it was also fundamentally triage. Is this person safe and able to stay in the theater of operations? Nice. nice. That, that's really interesting to hear that, um, 
just just a rule out there and like just how you assess the guys and try to give them the work around that like for like to address any MSK issues that they have. Were you primarily just based uh, within Bastion, or were you out at some of the fobs as well? No, no, no. So we would go, yeah. So we were we were we were, we were based in um, Kandahar. Um, okay. So we we'd be in Kandahar for about a week to a week and a half. Then we would run every two weeks. We'd run a, a clinic in Kabul. So we would look after um, we would look after um, any anyone who's UK and also mm-hmm. American as well, actually, because the Americans didn't actually have any any physiotherapy resources that would look at we would look after anyone in Kabul um who met a specific criteria um we would go down to Bastion um, but really we'd only pass through Bastion and then we would um look after uh headquarters uh Lashkagar. we'd also look after about three about two or three patrol bases as well um so uh, as a job it was great because we got <laughs> we got around an awful lot um, and we were always on the move um, so it was it was it was very rewarding and also it was it was great because you got to meet a lot of people and also you know you you got to see um, a lot of what was going on and and yeah you know there was uh, you know there was a few times when you probably uh, wish that you might not have been in certain places but hey it's just a part of it isn't it you know yeah. you um, do what you got to do Nice, nice. And just want to say as well, with regards to you guys mentioned, obviously, working there within your performance teams and, you know, trying to make sure that there was no hierarchical structure within that as such and like treating guys as equals. Can you just talk to us a little bit around your, your backgrounds with regards to being in integrated like uh, performance strategies? So how did you work with our departments to develop strategies to, like, you know, to either improve durability and resilience within the guys you had under your command? Well, uh, the, using the Headley Court model, we basically, it was all consultant-led, uh, but the consultants were, were very experienced, through, so they knew rehabilitation well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a consultant in, in, you know, in what was to become sports medicine, you've got an MSK physiotherapist, and you've got a, an RI or now an exercise rehab instructor. And that kind of, you know, the doc has got this, this, this breadth of knowledge which is massively important and he owns that and he's got oversight and rightly so. Then you've got the MSK physio able to do the quote unquote hands-on treatment and also thinking about different things. And then you've got the strength and conditioning coach, the exercise rehab instructor, um, able to relate to the blokes much better mm-hmm. because the, the hierarchical structure within the military is not there for the ERI that it is for the officers. Um, so, you know, there's that hierarchy issue that you've got to get across. So this combination of consultant, physio, exercise, rehab, and instructor means that you're hitting all levels. You're protected by the hierarchy, by the consultant, who's normally a half colonel uh, or a senior major. Um, you've got a physiotherapy officer, and then you've got the ERI, who's normally a staff sergeant or above. And, and within that team, although there's hierarchy, you know, everyone really was an equal. Yeah. Because we know that you've got to listen to the strength and conditioning coach. You've got to listen to the physio. You've got to listen to the doc. Um, so my experience of that was very positive uh, because you've got, you know, three heads are better than one. Um, I don't know what your experience of that was. Is. Yeah, no, it was actually very, very similar, um, uh, to be fair. It was actually very, very similar. I, I mean, I think, you know, there were times where, you know, certainly where... Um, if you like, um, 
the roles became slightly blurred. But yeah, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, there was divisions between um, each each of the uh, specialties. Um, and it's and it's important to see it as that, I think, as well, because often uh, I think what sometimes gets missed is that actually there are specialties. So and and each each specialty should bring something slightly different okay, to the party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, the physiotherapist is isn't just there to give the blokes a rub down. Yeah, the physiotherapist, okay, has a special interest in, um, you know, movement dysfunction and movement impairment, movement disorders. Yeah. So effectively, the stuff that you can't inject, you can't cut open with a scalpel. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you can't give medication to. Yeah. It's it, it that stuff. You know, the, you know, the uh, exercise rehabilitation instructor actually is a specialist in exercise prescription. Um, and fundamentally, you know, strength training and conditioning. You know, the doctor is an expert in pathology yeah, and sort of overall case management. But actually, um, you know, they're not a specialist in strength and conditioning. Uh, they're not a specialist in movement disorders, movement dysfunction. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So actually, it, it, I think it's quite important to bear that, in, you know, for that to be, you know, for that to come through. Each person within the team has uh, has effectively is a subject matter expert mm-hmm. within their specialism. Um, and, and when everyone understands that, the team works perfectly well. It, yeah. it works superly well. It, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so, yeah. And obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of blending across, across the boundaries, but actually, you know, um, fundamentally, everyone's a specialist. Nice. Nice. And with regards to that, then, obviously, we're seeing a lot of changes within the, the British Army uh, test and recruitment battery. So obviously, it's gone from the standard uh, PFT of the, you, you know, your press ups, your ups and 1.5 mile run into now with ground close combat fitness testing, which is specific to those guys. Has there been any changes within the, the physio structure as well with regards to screening tools you guys have used from like the, the early days to where you are now? Um. So we, uh, in the military, uh, well, in certain units within the military, um, we were using the, the functional movement screening tool probably from, uh, a, you know, really early from about 2008. Uh, and that was generally from the, the, the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. They had some great guys that were very switched on. They were into movement screening. Um, uh, and the, the functional movement screen gave us um, a hook, if you like, into, into the troops saying, you're not injured now, but your risk of injury could be high if we could identify this. Mm-hmm. So we used the functional me- movement screening tool, as something that the physio and the ERI would work on together to, to just kind of optimize movement and, and decrease injury if, if, you know, or decrease the likelihood of injury you know, you're, you're, you're trying to make the guys more resilient and working on their physical literacy or their movement literacy. Uh, we were doing a, a, a quite a, a young, a young stage. So when I, when I got there in 2009, working with these particular units, um, that was already up and running and functional movement screening was part of that. I went on to look at functional movement screening within the military, you know, how accurate was this injury prediction? Um, initially we were quite excited about but as the as functional movement screening got older more people started using it we it, we clearly saw that it couldn't predict injury and it, 
although the functional movement screen is is a great thing to do because it gets people you gets to look at movement literacy and it gets buy-in from from the clients it, it can't predict injury and i went on to do my masters in functional movement screening uh, and, and CrossFit, uh, and the same thing there. But coming back to the the history uh, of of how things were changing from this, you know, this pointless press ups, sit ups uh, that we were doing, mile and a half run, I get it. And then the big five came in. Do you remember the big fivers? The the press up, the plank, the front squat, the lunge, the deadlift. This was a great leap forwards. And I know some of the guys, uh, people like Al Humes, you know, Dusty Miller. Um, all the people at the at the PT school were, were pushing this for years and years, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. But it's very hard to get the military to change. And then probably in the last three years, everything's changed in terms of physical training than in the last 300 years. Mm -hmm. um, I know Urs has, has, has done a big history on this as well. So what are your thoughts on this, mate? Yeah, no, no it, it, I, I do laugh and I swell because actually it, 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 it's funny though, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, um, the press-ups, the sit-ups and the a mile and a half run, you know, that's what we were scored on. You know, when I joined at 16, that, that's what it was. It was how many press-ups can you do? How many sit-ups can you do? Uh, it was actually the just USMC. Just check it, how many, how many press-ups could you do? Well, back then, oh God, probably about 65, I reckon. Um, so, but... Back then, we had, you know, we used, we used um, you know, body weight, we used body weight fitness, essentially, um, activities, you know, you know so muscular fitness, we were interested in muscular fitness, but it was very much from the body weight perspective. Now, it's interesting, though, it's a, it's a, although we look at it now, and we say, actually, that wasn't that helpful. But back then, that was the best we had. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a, you know, so I'm probably more, I'm probably quite philosophical about it, really. It was the best we had. And actually, what it did do was it tested general physical robustness. Okay. Um, and, it, and it was more simply a matter of, you know, how much pain are you willing to tolerate? Yeah. How many sit-ups can you do? How many burpees can you do? How many squat thrusts can you do? Um, how many pull-ups can you do? Okay. How fast can you run a mile and a half? It was simply there, okay, certainly from a from marine perspective, it was simply there, okay, to weed out people who would keep going and had a baseline level of fitness that was such that they might just survive the course. Now, obviously, you fast forward, and we know, actually, because, you know, we see so we see so much research science and evidence okay um which is out there around you know the benefits of strength training the benefits of conditioning um you know the the, the benefits of nutrition the benefits of recovery strategies and so on so we've evolved okay and we should and we should obviously um you know you, you know integrate as much of this as possible into what we do but actually what we did back then it was it wasn't great but um it served a purpose okay what it did was it, it weeded out people who didn't have a basic level of fitness now um as dale knows as um you know it's you know we've had this conversation actually you know you do need a method for finding especially in um you know combat units so for example for working out who are the people who will keep going and will keep pushing and um, will display the physical and moral characteristics um, of courage 
fundamentally, okay, um, and keep going because you want someone like that, okay, and the military still needs people like that 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 are a bit savage. Let's let's be honest, okay. Once you once you have effectively worked out what that who that individual is, okay, by their willingness to keep going, okay, when the odds are stacked against them i.e. this is physically unpleasant yeah at that point then you have to change the training and what and what you then have to do is you now have to start to develop okay someone who is robust okay using sensible very sensible strength and conditioning principles Mm -hmm. okay um but to get to that point where you find that individual you've probably got to be a little bit a little bit savage You, you you've got to push them yeah? yeah and that's what that particular methodology 20 years ago did yeah um now obviously they didn't follow it up with really good strength and conditioning principles but hopefully that's what we have now so uh, i'm not sure i've answered the question but i think you know probably i can end it by saying you know we have moved on and it's yeah. and it's and it's very good that we've moved on and we're you know starting to integrate um you know more modern um, strength and conditioning principles but interesting thing I, I would say this actually um and obviously i'm slightly biased because because i'm a you know you know former royal marine the royal marines were very good were very very good you know 15 you know 15 16 years ago they were very 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 good okay at um taking research and implementing it within um their environment because you had um the royal naval institute of um, the Royal Naval Institute of Medicine, of I think in Institute Royal Naval, Naval Medicine, Medicine or something. That's the one, yeah, exactly. The Institute of Naval Medicine, uh, and they were forever conducting um, research um, with the Royal Marines. In fact, I think it was called the Fox Study, which was in the early nineties. Okay, where they where they looked at injury risk. Okay, within the Royal Marines, and they put in. Um, you know, and they put in a lot of strategies to try and minimise the injury risk. So they were well ahead of their time, probably further ahead than the army. I would say it took quite a long time for um, ARTD, which is which is which is the recruiting section of the army, uh, the scientific recruiting section of the army, to really get on board with um, injury prevention strategies. So, yeah, nice. Thanks for that. Uzo. I mean, really good comprehensive uh, background on that. And like you say. Um, Things do need to evolve, but I don't think everything we've always done has been bad. Like the the fact of having that body weight uh, calisthenics or background there is great because, like you say, it weeds out the guys who don't have that mentality or that physical base to build on, uh, and mm-hmm. you do need that in there Absolutely. somewhere. So you can't just come in and say, "Oh, well, this is this is nonsense," you know, because it does play a role there. Mm-hmm. It does have some impact within it. And um, well, the, the big no, five, it, it, yeah. Uh, I mean, so just to, I mean, just to go back there, I mean, yeah. uh, actually, you know, if it didn't work, yeah, yeah, and it was, you know, okay, it, it's, it's not to say, you know, Dale's right, it, it, it isn't, it wasn't the best way, mm-hmm. okay, of retaining huge amounts of people, yeah, and, 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 and it certainly wasn't the best way after they were trained and they were now within your force, yeah, okay, to improve fitness. But it was a very good way to weed out people who weren't going to be capable of of tolerating the physical loads during basic training. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, every every man and woman that went to the Falklands War, 
yeah, okay, in 1982, which was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, you know, the Royal Marines did this, what was it, a 72-kilometer yomp or, or march, yeah, with all their kit, because basically all the helicopters had been blown up, right, on, um, on one of the auxiliary ships. So they had to walk across the Falklands. Now, and the parachute regiment for that matter, like Goose Green, yeah, okay, uh, and, and, and you had the guards, um, at, you know, Mount Harrier and and, and and Mount Tumbledown, they all had to, in order to join, had to pass, had to get through this press-up, sit-ups, mile-and-a-half run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And uh, many of these operators were very robust. Yeah, So it was good enough for them. When we go back and we look for history, of course, you know, we can make things better. Yeah. yeah, We can make things better so that we have less attrition. But fundamentally, you go back and you look for a history and you say, well, it's anecdotal, but it makes it very, very difficult to argue that, you know. Well, I, I am going to argue that. I am going to argue that. Then. So when, when I was doing, so I've, I've been using functional movement screening, particularly the trunk stability push-up. Um, yep. So if you look at the quality of movement, particularly from ladies as well, this is in a sexist statement, I can back this up with evidence. So there's a double movement, okay, because there's a lack of stabilization between the shoulder girdle mm-hmm. and the pelvis for mm-hmm. females in terms of trunk stability. So what happens is that if you make somebody do push-ups, as many as they can in two minutes, what you're doing is you're saying it's okay to do poor technique because what counts is the reps rather than the quality of the reps. Yep. So when, when I was working with the reserves, I've, I've got the study to back this up. Um, most females, okay, and some males, couldn't even do one quality push-up because they had no trunk stability. So what happens is all you're doing is ingraining poor movement patterns, poor technique, accepting poor technique um, mm-hmm. from the beginning without, without front-loading these people with how to move and the movement literacy mm-hmm. and now the military has gotten onto this and now mm-hmm. it's doing the the movement literacy stuff that it shamelessly stole from the czech institute um mm-hmm. uh, we can see that we've got pull squat twist mm-hmm. push brace and lunge and that that's pretty much mm-hmm. pull check's primal patterns i you know mm-hmm. i've been teaching that since pull check mm-hmm. trained me in 2001 but the, mm-hmm. the, gr- the good news is that the military's finally got into that but where you need mm-hmm. a physio and an ERI is correcting technique, particularly now the deadlift is mm-hmm. one of the exercises. Um, I would agree. We, no, no, no. We need to focus no. on that. No, I would agree, Dale. But but actually, what I would say is is and and I think I think we both agree, but I think we're coming at it at slightly different in slightly different directions. Um, my fundamental argument is 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 that actually. Um, you know, those particular exercises that we were talking about before, the historical exercises, um, they were appropriate for testing some degree of muscle fitness or, or, or muscular fitness. Um, and actually, you know, the criterion was that actually each rep had to be a quality rep. And, and you'll certainly uh, re- remember, you know, back in the day, you know, the physical training instructor would be there saying no rep, no rep. Discount Only that one. In the Marines, no rep. Only in the Marines. Absolutely. No rep. Discount that one. No rep. Discount that one. So actually, 
it was about the quality of the rep. So I completely agree with you. Movement quality is important. Absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. But also what we find is that when um, the person has, you know, people are relatively coached, are coached relatively well, okay, um, during training because you have a sea of physical training instructors. When people are trained and they get to their units, especially in the army, as an example, okay, what we see is there's not that many physical training instructors around. So actually, people become sloppy. Um, technique deteriorates. And this is where we get the situation where actually you've got someone who they, says that they say they're doing a press-up, but they're not really doing one. Mm-hmm. They're doing something, which is some 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 hybrid so i think we agree i think we agree and and i would completely agree with you on on that point um but i think we should move on or we uh, run the risk of um, going around in circles so this is what the bulletproof bodies do we debate things at high level with opposing opinions listening to each other and just trying to work it out and, and the good thing that we do is that we stay lucid we do, we're not we're very flexible in our approaches we're changing according to the evidence and we have some good old debates, which is, which is really where we need to be, discussing things, challenging, challenging dogma, challenging um, you know, the way we're doing things. Uh, and, and this discussion is really important for, for our growth. Um, so you know, I like to almost agree to disagree sometimes. Uh, but this, yeah, debate that we're, this debate that we're having is very healthy. Um, when you've got two parties like Uzo and myself that respect each other massively, um, I think debate it can be really, really valuable. Uh, and we both learn something. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I agree with both of you guys on that. And I think it's important, as you say, coming in with an open mind and being able to see things from multiple perspectives. And I think from a mm. practitioner standpoint, a lot of practitioners can sometimes fall short of this. They surround themselves with others you know who are of the similar mindset and belief system as them and i'd mm. say it's probably better to go out there and go speak to someone who is completely 180 to you and get their perspective on things because it can change your mind mm. and help develop your own practice as well so 100 agree with you guys on that that takes me in but quite nicely um, to my next point for you guys so just how has your own practice and your own philosophies for you guys how you approach physiotherapy how has that changed from when you guys first started back in 2017, 2018, you know, as newly um, qualified physios to where you are now. Do you want to go first there or shall I? Um, you, you go first because you've got to get away, haven't you, mate? Yeah. No. Uh, okay. So uh, a, a very good question, JP. I, I mean, how's it? I think I've come full circle, to be honest with you. And the reason why I say that is because, as I said previously, um, I trained as a personal trainer stroke uh, fitness instructor so when i be, so, so when i became a physiotherapist uh, i already had that skill set but what i found actually well, was that um i found that i actually i had to it sounds crazy but i had to push that to one side to a certain extent because um it was all about okay i had to learn about pathology and i had to learn about the physiotherapy stuff quote unquote so I learned a lot of hands-on stuff. I learned a lot about reasoning, so clinical reasoning and clinical thinking around um, problem solving, okay, which I probably didn't have to do as a personal trainer per se because um, the population that I dealt with was much more uniform, whereas actually I came into an organisation uh, or a profession where the population was not uniform at all and there was a lot of uncertainty. There was more uncertainty. 
Um, and I was quite uncomfortable with that uncertainty. Um, I only really became comfortable with the certainty until I did my first MSc, which was a MSc, a, physio, a neuromuscular skeletal physiotherapy MSc, which, which um, in essence was, um, it was all about clinical reasoning. It was all about problem solving and, and working out clinical problems. And that was probably the biggest change for me. But even up until that point, I'd still exercise was, it was important but I hadn't really been able to contextualize it and put it into a workable framework that fitted in well with the stuff I'd been learning around physiotherapy, which was pathology-based, communication-based, and um, hands-on, if you like, treatment-based. And then, and and the reason why I've come full circle, because, you know, uh, JP, I'm, I'm on the MSC that you've done now yeah. um, so I'm, I'm on the uh, msc in strength and conditioning at uh, at st mary's university um, and as i say and, and so i've come full circle because now if i if i look at where i am now okay it's different now because now very much um the exercise and snc training which you know i kind of you know, physical preparation is what i like to call it now rather than um it's very much integrated within a clinical framework um so i call it clinical um you know, integrated clinical strength and conditioning for want of a better phrase mm-hmm. um and, and so i think i've come full circle now um so i still have a strong emphasis on of you know so pathology movement dysfunction um but now also i also have a very strong basis and and, and probably an evolving basis in um using performance-based uh, strategies if you like for one of a better phrase okay to support um if you like the physiotherapy um underpinning so that's kind of where i've come so i've, I've got a, i've done a full 380 and the reason why i had to do a full 380 because at that point you know people weren't that interested in um exercise as a modality in fact i would say that actually you know the paradigm was very much manual therapy, mobilization, mm-hmm. um, you know, general exercise, yeah, um, or, you know, very sort of, um, that's what I'm looking for, very sort of rudimentary based exercise. Put your body in this position and move this particular way. Well, we know probably now that that's maybe, that may or may not be very helpful. So, yeah, so that's the, that's how I've evolved, really. Dale, what about you? Well, it's interesting you say that as well, because Uzo and I tend to, you know, we tend to look after different departments. So I was taught the biopsychosocial method, uh, undergraduate physiotherapy uh, by Dr. Lester Jones. It really changed my, my mindset from this very biomedical stuff. Like um, you've got knee pain that's coming from the meniscal tear in your knee. Uh, and so, you know, using the, the biology, the psychology and the social side of things. I then went on to do more of the holistic method. So what we, what we can be in danger of, and, and some of the literature uh, will, will not really address this, is, is that we need to treat the whole person. And it's only when we treat the whole person, we understand that this is not a quote-unquote knee patient. This is um, Dale Walker with a knee injury. So I think that that lens that we view this through is very important. So we need to know what's going on in that individual's lives. We need to know how stressed they are and also 
how, how well are they recovering after exercise? So people tend to use exercise um, as a kind of de-stressing tool. Um, and because of that, they, they, they might over-exercise. They might over-train and under-recover. And you can get into this whole exercise addiction piece um, that I deal with a lot, particularly in the CrossFit arena, um, where someone's self-esteem is, is effectively how much they can lift or how fast they can do a particular workout. And then, I, you know, I worked in bodybuilding for two years. Um, and bodybuilding is full, or the, the, when I work with the bodybuilders, is full of these fantastic-looking people, aesthetically very pleasing bodies. But in terms of their psychology about how they view themselves, it's very, they're very negative and, and damning. And, you know, the opposite of anorexia nervosa is, you know, muscle dysmorphia. So you've got this aesthetically very pleasing population with muscle dysmorphia. So, so they're, not, they're not very well in their mind and their head mm -hmm. and their views are not, are not there. So, um, you know, I'm just about to qualify as a yoga teacher. Um, and, you know, while Uzo's doing a, a master's in strength and conditioning, I'm going off and becoming a yoga teacher. So um, the, the good thing about Bulletproof Bodies is that we, we're, we're the whole spectrum of fitness. So, yes, yeah, strength is important. Um, but, you know, we, we know about strength we, we, and Uzo's going in more into that with, with the masters. Whereas what about recovery? So we, you know, we're really focusing on, on getting that recovery right. You know, things like compression stocks, electrical stimulation, um, you know, foam rolling, massage guns, um, stimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, all that sort of stuff as well. So, you know, you've got to, you know, because, you know, alpha people tend to just want to bang the drum uh, and the clever ones will be working on recovery because that's that's where the market is, the recovery market. So we try and cater for everything. I hope that answers to your question. Yeah, that's that's awesome, guys. And I mean, 100%, like everyone always wants to, to push the needle and uh, get better, better, better performance now, but no one's ever wanted to try and, you know, as you say, recover in that and downregulate uh, just so they can come back stronger from that. It's interesting, like you say, you guys are looking at different aspects as well with regards to your own CPD. Um, Uzo, great choice doing the, the Masters in SNC at St. Mary's. It's a great course. And Dale, for yourself, uh, getting involved with yoga. I know from my own personal practice with an SNC, I'm looking now at a lot more gymnastic work, especially around trying to strengthen and stabilize around the shoulder joint, especially in rugby players, going away from the traditional, right, we're going to press heavy and we'll do a little bit of uh, internal external rotation, you know. So now we're looking at like, right, can we work at different angles where you have to produce force or stabilize at that point to try and make sure that shoulder joint is really stable through. I think it's just coming at that and seeing it different, um, different trend modalities and different um, groups you can look at and be like, right, what are they doing? What can I take from that? You know, I don't need to drink the whole cup, but I can take a couple of sips from that at least, you know, and go from there. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. Definitely very interesting. Absolutely. Just a quick note on that, uh, on that sort of gymnastic orientation. I, I was a gymnast between the age of five and 15. Uh, and I know uh, one of Uzo's daughters is a, is, a, is a fantastic gymnast as well. But within gymnastics, you know, if you look at CrossFit, people, this is effectively an adult population doing gymnastics without the movement literacy or the physical literacy <laughs> to understand that. Yeah. So, so Absolutely. what happens is, is that because I was a gymnast, my body knows what to do. It just kicks in because I've got the movement literacy. So what happens is that loads of people are 
doing lots of pressing movements, handstand mm -hmm. push-ups, overhead press, snatch, but they're not on the parallettes doing any, you know, just stabilization, okay? Uh, uh, getting the, the lower trapezius, if we can be reductionist like that, or, or, you know, just holding it on the parallel bars. You know, that's the reverse of the press, mm -hmm. okay? It's just holding the stability there. And you get somebody on the rings, uh, you know, and they're shaking like uh, the proverbial pooing dog, okay? Because they, th their body doesn't know how to stabilize in that position. Um, so I love working with the rings, particularly you've got some big strong guy, okay? And you know that he hasn't got enough stabilization strategy. It's not the muscles, it's not working on the, st the stability of the muscles. It's the whole package. It's the central nervous system because the central nervous system doesn't really care about muscles. It cares about movement and movement literacy. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Liz? Funny you say that because uh, I, I'm, I, I'm there looking at like yeah, and, I, and I'm smiling and I'm thinking actually this you know I love principles um, because principles you know are like the handrail that keeps you steady in times of need. I like principles because you know, they can be applied across the board. And I look at you know so so when I you know a lot of my private work is with uh, climbers. Okay, uh, recreational climbers and actually some very good climbers who are um, you know working at a very high level, um, and it comes back to the same thing. It's like okay, so you ask you know most climbers that we see okay have persistent long-standing injuries. Okay, so that's why they come and see us. Okay, so fundamentally what we do we deliver physical preparation or or, or quote unquote rehabilitation um, to these guys after a really good assessment, um, and often what I find is. Uh, climbers just climb yeah yeah so climbers just climb and climbers try to get better at climbing by practicing the skill of climbing and and often what they do is they overload the skill of climbing okay in the hope that that's going to somehow improve them yeah and it, and it does for the most part okay but they reach a point where they have to keep increasing the load yeah okay and fundamentally the, the things that go wrong often are in these digits or in the fingers yeah because we weren't designed okay to climb uh, we just weren't you know and we can argue the evolutionary aspects but uh, you know we weren't designed and so what tends to happen is um we'll see these climbers that have elbow pain shoulder pain pain and um, uh, finger pain and so on um and these are long-term persistent problems and often they're surprised when I ask them questions or actually as a, as a part of the assessment, I look away from the injured area and move up. So for example, okay. Um, if they've got chronic finger pain, okay. I go up to the shoulder and I go across the torso. And also I want to see what they're doing with their feet. Yeah. I want to see how good their hip extension is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because fundamentally you look at the mechanics of climbing. Okay. Um, the mechanics suggest that the closer your base of support is towards that wall, okay, the less demand you're going to ask from your extremities, okay? So, you know, the further you are horizontally, the more you're going to ask of the extremities. So, and it comes back to Dale's point, it's like you, like movement literacy, movement literacy, physical literacy, okay, you need to have some fundamental, you know, some fundamental principles or some fundamental baselines have to be in place, okay, if you want to um perform well in that particular activity and and i think as a metaphor this can be applied to anything yeah if you're a dustman 
yeah okay and you're heaving around um you know bins every day yeah you need to be in, in a good in good physical condition to achieve that now what does that mean it means you need to be able to make appropriate shapes okay that allow force absorption force transmission so force force transfer and force generation okay uh you need to have enough strength but also strength and reserve as well so work capacity so all of these things yes you need to have enough shoulder stability but but even if we just come back and we just think very broadly like it's what i'm just using different terms but effectively i'm saying what they've said it's and it's the foundation it's the foundational stuff and this is why i think probably in our profession as physiotherapists we do very badly or we don't want to talk about because uh, what people will do is they will value signal and say, oh yeah, but there's no evidence for this. And I say, well, okay, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, there's no systematic review. There's no paper to support this. So everything you've just said, Dale, there's no paper to support it. There's no systematic review. There's no meta-analysis. It's not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not there, but then actually, does it need to be there? Do we need to have a piece of research to say something which you know fundamentally okay makes a lot of sense and if you apply that with some of the research that we do have judiciously and also we apply that to the patients in front of us and what they want or the athlete in front of us and what they want to achieve okay do we need to have a systematic review you know like there are no randomized controlled randomized um, trials okay around whether you should or shouldn't wear a parachute when you jump out of a plane yeah? it's because it's infinitely stupid to to jump out of a para- to jump out of a plane without a parachute mm-hmm. the chances are you're going to die yeah let's be honest yeah so but no one's asking for a controlled randomized trial yeah it, it's an extreme example but but we see this silliness I call it silliness. We see this silliness in our profession because people, you know, hold, you know, empirical research as some bastion of truth. When actual fact, it's not. It's not some bastion of truth. Everything's biased. Yeah, everything is biased. Yeah, and and fundamentally, what happens is, you know, we we use this stuff. We and and we and we um, and we end up being dictated to often because we're not in a position or knowledgeable enough to read it, interpret it and understand it. Um, and then therefore being in a position that we can actually argue against it. But, you know, that's probably for another podcast on, you know, how we use evidence. Well, we're, we're informed by the literature. We're informed by absolutely. the literature, but we're not shackled by it. No, we shouldn't be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's the key thing. Guys, I have to go, unfortunately. Um, it's really good talking to you. No worries, um, thank you so much for taking the time, mate. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Really good talking to you, mate. And um, uh, Dell, we will talk um, for sure. And uh, yeah, really good work you're doing, John, mate. And um, and best of luck with uh, the course. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll be in contact via um, social media. Okay. Awesome. Appreciate no it. Cool. See thank you guys you later. Bro. See you, bud. Cheers, See you later, mate. Bye bye. Okay, mate. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just me now. No, no I can worries. get a word. I can get a word in edgeways now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. I mean, um, it's really interesting. Like some of the points Uzo was bringing up there, and yourself, Dale. Um, the, the two main ones that struck me out there is like 
for us anyway, like given our own individual backgrounds with regards to sport and training, we understand that there's a physical uh, ability that backs up that, that skill or that, that sport and practice. We find typically within different groups and like within different sports as well. Um, sometimes it's just not there. I remember, I can't remember the name of the presenter was at a conference. He was talking about uh, professional football and like just the culture around that with regards to their physical training like and physical preparation. And his, uh, the words that really stuck with me was that with most football, football players, the guys are, they're overplayed, over, under-trained. You know, so they'll spend a lot of time with the ball at their feet, but they'll never spend time working on those general qualities that'll help enhance that uh, performance. And with regards to you guys discussing the research literature out there as well, agree 100%. It's, it's nice to have that research there as a guide uh, to help uh, promote practice within that, but we have to understand the limitations of research. And there's always going to be that, that lag behind with regards to the research of people will be doing things in practice and the research will come along a year or two later to back it up and be like, actually, yeah, you are right to be doing that sort of thing. So if you're waiting on the research, you're always going to be a step behind, I think. So it's interesting just to hear your perspectives on that. Well, I, I think once once you've been around the bazaars as long as Uzo and I have, and, and as you can see, we, we, we have some fierce debates, but, but that's how it should be. Um, because ultimately, two sides of the story are, are better than your own, your own confirmation bias. Yeah. Um, so we're constantly... You know, we've got to keep bulletproof bodies sharp and pointy so that we, we, are, we are edgy um, with what we do so that we, we're, we're informed by the, the science and the literature as well. But what happens is that in order to get a good study, and Uzo and I have done this as well with our, with our own research, is that you've, you've got to rely on reductionism. So, for example, you can produce a paper that's saying, I don't know, for instance, acupuncture is ineffective at doing this. Okay, but, you know, what style of acupuncture is that? Mm -hmm. You know, did they do the acupuncture effectively? And you can begin to take apart any paper, really. Um, and what happens is that in, in our physio treatments, we don't just do one treatment, we layer the treatments. And there's no randomized controlled trial on layering of treatments. So if you're using the theory of marginal gains, you know, I can get 1% by acupuncture, 1% by myofascial release, 1% by taping. 1% by exercise therapy, then all of a sudden I've got a 5% increase. Mm -hmm. um, and although I'm informed by the literature, okay, I'm not ignorant of it, um, you, you know, it, there's a real danger that, that we, we hide behind, oh, it's not evidence-based. Well, in actual fact, you know, you can take apart any study. And even, you know, the big core, you know, big core stability issue, for example, you know, there will be times when I will give quote-unquote core stability to a patient but I think what's happened with things like core stability is it's not followed through so for example I will take somebody with back pain if I think it they might have some core stability issues um, and then we switch on the core um, we do some Pilates work with them and then I get them when they're ready into function doing things like a Turkish get-up a weighted Turkish get-up so we're not just doing all these all these sort of Pilates type exercises that they can't relate to. As soon as they're ready, we've progressed them up to loaded exercise. Um, so, so that we're doing functional stuff, you know, get, you know, try, try being on a slack line without engaging your core stability. Yeah. You know, and it's little tips and tricks that, that when you've been around and you've, and, and you've, you've been in this space, the healing space and the fitness space for a long while, 
you begin like yourself john to use little tips and tricks you'd be like do you know what that would work really well for this or no let's think about this differently and uzo and i constantly um you know changing the model working off principles discussing things you know being informed and and that's the only way to be and that's why it's great to have a podcast where we're getting this knowledge out there not to say we're the experts this is the dogma but you know what do you think let's open the discussion let's have a debate and that's that's the healthy thing to do definitely definitely mate and like i say if you're open to discussion and debate it's always going to help enhance your own practice but also the practices of others around you and that as well and i think it's always good to come in with a, an open mindset around all these different areas um, as you say it's like it could be just a small small performance gain you gain from different methods you use it could only be one percent but if you compound all them up you've got a really good performance effect from different modalities and stuff so yeah it's interesting really really interesting um i was going to ask you dale because i'm always interested to know about people's cpd practices and what they're doing could you give us a um a favorite book of yours an app or website you you found quite useful um well yeah i'm um yeah I, there's there's lots of stuff that that i find incredibly useful so we're constantly scanning um the internet for good quality sources of information mm-hmm. um marcus philly's functional bodybuilding i'm quite a good uh, quite a big fan of um you know uh last year i was on uh the jeremy lewis shoulder course so you know getting getting a one-to-one with you know a, a, a just a top-notch physio um what else have i been doing um the Paul check holistic lifestyle counseling okay. um so you know uh, obviously my, my yoga teaching uh with, with sarah ramsden she she does all the kind of the sports yoga um in the premiership so you know we 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 are we try and make sure we've got our finger on the pulse so, so that our cpd is really diverse um i also do obviously i'm an educator for a living um uh, so you know i go off and do a public speaking course because we're, we're constantly refining that uh, and then look looking at different ways of teaching um you know from the classic you know piaget stuff to you know the evidence behind learning styles um to you know trying to find new ways of learning particularly in the digital age when you know um you know with uzo and i are developing some online courses uzo is running an online course um so you know you there's so much diversity in our cpd it's it's not um it's never just physio it's never just dogma we we've got fingers in pies everywhere mm-hmm. um uh, what, what about yourself, John? How, what about your CBD? How, how do you stay up to date with that? So for me at the moment, um, as I was saying to you before, I'm trying to make the move into physiotherapy. So at the moment, I am uh, looking a bit more at anatomy, like having an understanding of anatomy from the S&C standpoint and the physio standpoint are two different ends of the spectrum, I'd say. So right now, my understanding is quite gross in terms of my knowledge around it. But having that understanding, that acute knowledge of uh, anatomy, I'm especially finding looking at things like the hands and the feet, you know, just how in depth that is. Um, so I'm currently working around that, and I've just gone a book by Joe What's Skinny, I think his name is, uh, just on the art of learning. So that's my next read there as well. So, like you say, I think it's important to um, just really focus on all all different areas of your development. So from technical and practical knowledge but also 
um, for those uh, communication skills, human interaction skills, that sort of thing. So you can get that message across really well. So yeah, that's that's a decent deal. That's, uh, I've taken a note of a couple of those uh, resources there, so I'll make sure I pop them into the show notes uh, for guys to look into after this. Can you just talk to us now, Dale, a little bit about um, your business at Bulletproof Bodies that you and Uzo run and like how can people get in touch with you guys going forward? Yeah, well, um, I, I've got uh, I've got the the brains behind Bulletproof Bodies, um, Steve here with me. Um, so Steve's the designer of the logo. He, the, we've got a brand new website coming soon, mm -hmm. which will be released. Um, we're going to be starting to do some telehealth consultations. Um, there's lots of good stuff coming uh, on the Bulletproof Bodies website. Um, now, obviously, the the COVID situation appears to be um, you know, under quote unquote control and, uh, and the gyms are getting back to normal. Hopefully, um, we're going to start, you know, with some more of the workshops, the bulletproof bodies workshops, bulletproof your body, bulletproof shoulder, bulletproof back. That's mainly aimed at the CrossFit and strength and conditioning markets. Um, uh, because that, that's, that's kind of our, our bread and butter. Uh, I know Uzo looks after a lot of climbers. I look after a lot of strength and conditioning, coaching athletes, uh, power lifters. Um, obviously, as you now becoming a, a yoga yoga teacher, I, I'm in contact with a lot more people in yoga. There's, um, uh, you know, uh, my friend Benoit is doing a lot with yoga teachers in, in Harley Street in London. Mm -hmm. um, so there's so much we're doing, but um, our main focus will be the fan dance in the Brecon Beacons in September. Uh, so September 19th and 20th, I think it is, uh, the Bulletproof Bodies boys will be there doing some hands-on treatment. And then we'll be doing the, the, night, the night navigation race ourselves. Uh, and we're there twice a year in the Brecon Beacons. That's our, our spiritual home. We love, we love that part of the world. Uh, nice. And there's nothing, nothing more functional than putting a pack on and yomping up and down, uh, up and down the Brecon Beacons as fast as you can. Nice, nice, man. And uh, social media? Are you guys on uh, for yourself personally you're on instagram you're on linkedin that sort of stuff as well yeah i um so we're we, we we're just back on instagram um obviously there wasn't there wasn't much to to post apart from us working out uh it, you know with what we could during lockdown um so you know now that business is opened up again we're you know we're back into it um you know just posting some tips and tricks you know things like taping um, little intricate things that we do that are not commonplace. Um, yeah, so we're on all the socials, um, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you can, uh, the brand new website coming soon. You can reach us on all of those. I'm, I'm, I'll give you that, uh, all the links in the show notes. Um, and, you know, we're back up and running for business. Um, now the world is uh, back on online. Uh, so, so are we. It's, t it's taken just a little bit of uh, juggling to get us to sit down together with yourself, Dale, and uh, Uzo as well, just because of everyone's busy schedules and that. But, uh, you know, good things come to people who wait. So I've really enjoyed this chat. It's been, it's been a decent one, bud. Yeah, well, you know, next, you know, if we're, we're ever, whereabouts in Scotland are you? So I'm up in the Arctic North here, mate, up in Aberdeen. So we are up on the, the northeast coast but we are back under lockdown measures now as well up here just because we've had a sudden spike in cases so we've got seven day lockdown going on and we'll see what happens at the end of that 
Yeah. Well, so, you know, I was speaking with my, uh, my physio students uh, yesterday because we, we were allowed to do some face-to-face -face with social distancing and, and the appropriate PPE measures. Uh, and everyone's just doing body weight stuff because nobody had enough weights. So mm -hmm. nobody's doing strength training. So we, we're constantly finding new ways to do, do that. So I've been getting into, you know, some one-arm push-ups, some pistol squats, you know, trying to optimize the, the, the body as best we can. Yeah. Uh, and, and in actual fact, lockdown's been good for my fitness. So I, I think I've actually made some gains. Um, you've got to seize the opportunity and, uh, and take the moment, haven't you? Definitely, man. Definitely. And I think it's, like you touched on there, it's like, there's always options. Uh, I think a lot of people just throw their hands up like, oh, well, I can't do anything because the gyms are closed. Like, well, no, people have been training in bodyweight modalities for years and years, you know, and you can get some sort of training effect from it. It's just being smart with your training. So, it's like, it, For me, it's all about the kettlebell. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I love the kettlebell because the kettlebell is different from the barbell and the dumbbell because it's about physical literacy. Um, it's about how you move because you can do the clean and jerk, the snatch, the Turkish get up. It's a lot more versatile, you know, spin the kettlebell round. So you invert the kettlebell shoulder stabilization yeah. exercise. You know, for me, the kettlebell is the tool of choice at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, because it's combining those two elements of, of, of movement and weight training as well. A bit, bit kind of Eugene Sandow. Um, a bit old school, but you know, everything comes 360, like Uzo said. Nice, man. Nice. Anyway, bud, I know, Dale, you're, you're a busy man. I won't uh, take up too much more of your time, mate. So, just like to say once again, thank you very much and really appreciate taking the time to speak here. No, John, it's been absolutely great. It's, it's quite unusual to get Uzo and I in the same place. That's a, that's a challenge in itself. It's great to hear that, you know, Pete and JP on the podcast. Um, you know, it, within the military and the CrossFit circuit and strength conditioning circuit, you know, there's some great people working in this industry. Um, it's certainly, I think it's the best industry to be in. It's very positive. It's very pro-human. It's very pro-health. Uh, and, you know, if we need one thing at this time, this day and age, it, it's working on our immune system um, and staying strong. So, you know, great stuff, John, for getting the message out there. Podcasts are the way forward. Share the information. Share the love. Let's get everyone's immune system up. Let's get everyone healthy. Uh, and let's move forward together. Nice, mate. Nice deal. Good. Everybody, we'll speak to you soon, buddy. And uh, thanks once again, bud. Absolute pleasure, John. Next yeah. time, mate. Next time. Hey, Cheers now. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.